Presented by Kamuk Ukulele Magazine, this is Ukulele Stories. This episode is brought to you by Ohana Ukuleles. The Cynthia Lynn Signature Series by Ohana features two high-quality ukulele models with specifications chosen by the artists. A floral inlay at the 12th fret echoes the plumeria often worn in her hair. Worth brown strings give the instruments a lighter touch, while Cynthia's signature adorns the headstock. The CK14CL is an all-mahogany concert ukulele in a satin finish with a well-padded gig bag, while the CK35CGCL is all-solid mahogany with a cutaway and gloss finish. A plush-lined Ohana hard case makes this ukulele a very attractive package. Ohana is proud to honour Cynthia Lynn's talent and her contribution to the ukulele world as a performer and educator. Check out these two stunning instruments at your local ukulele dealer. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Ukulele Stories. My name is Cameron Murray. Today it's my great pleasure to present a chat with the entirely splendiferous Janet Klein. Since 1998, the charming Uke Plain Chanteuse and her hot band The Parlor Boys have been recording and performing rare and forgotten musical gems from the 1910s, 20s and 30s. During lockdown, she's kept herself busy presenting her Hit of the Week Parlor Party, an online hootenanny that features interviews with fascinating artists and historians, as well as plenty of fabulous music. Janet is one of the most interesting people I have the privilege to know. So, without further ado, here she is. Janet Klein. Hello, I'm very glad to be with you today. So, how, how is life and lockdown treating you just generally, first of all? Well, it's unimaginable. <laughs> it's just... Uh, we were not paying attention, I think, to the possibilities of global pandemics. So I just couldn't have even dreamed this up. And that it would be global and that we would all be dealing with this, this at the same time. It's actually kind of nice, I think, that we're all dealing with it at once together. Because if it was just yes. a couple of countries, they would feel very isolated. At least we're exactly. all together. Exactly. It is. It's a teachable moment. It's a universal empathy moment. Mm. It, it, we can learn what's working for you, what's working for you. We can all team up to try to figure out the vaccines and the cures and get information from each other. And I guess we are on some levels anyway, but it really is. Uh, it's just unbelievable. I w- and, and I think it's a, it, it also could just be a time for everybody to say, hey, we have to face global warming and all kinds of global issues. So why don't we all just team up and figure this stuff out? You know, when it first happened and and things were completely shut down, um, this is, you know, mid-March. Wow, what a great training session this is. For instance, you you could have tried to propose a program where businesses would just shut down strategically to let up on energy usage or transportation and to cut down on pollution. And no, you couldn't have done it. You couldn't have talked people into it. But here we are. We're going to force into it. And and it's amazing that we could do it. We could learn from this and, you know, just stagger, take longer vacations, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I I think we could come out of this with a lot of benefits, hopefully, if we do it right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, one thing that's, uh, of course, we live in Los Angeles and we spend hours and hours on the road normally all during the week and running around more on the weekend. So we've hardly been driving. 
just start to realize, oh, wow, we, we've been using up two hours every day during the week driving on the freeways. Now we have two extra hours a day during the weekdays to do something else. We're very fortunate because, uh, you know, we love our house. We've been yearning for daylight hours at home for years because <laughs> we're always overbooked and doing too many things and running around. And so the, in certain ways, it's, it's like a paradise just to be able to cut down on all the commitments, stop driving so much and, and concentrate. I keep saying I haven't had this much mental space or just schedule space since I was a kid on summer vacation. So I'm very thankful for it. And I'm really trying to use it and be as productive as I can and just do whatever I can. Just, I feel like I'm sneaking it in until things go back to normal. And we, uh, we keep saying, if we can stay healthy and figure out how to pay the bills, you know, on the QT, it's like, wow, this is really a gift. So accept that so many people are suffering and, you know, it's like, what's going on out there beyond the doorstep? But it's great to be home where we don't have to wear masks and hazmat suits. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh. oh, And yeah. uh, so I would say that uh, probably some of the people who followed me and my music over the years, I think I, I'm a little spoiled because I have so many great band members and there's such great musicians and uh well i started to realize well you know i like to play ukulele when i like to play ukulele you know i don't need to play on every song uh i like to be free to move around and and only think about one thing at a time which is uh, for me singing <laughs> if i could just sing without playing i do enjoy that also mm. so i would say that since i can't get together with anybody and I'm back at this solo situation. Um, I've been playing a lot of ukulele since March and, I, and putting it out there and making little videos and phoning it in for various events. For Mother's Day, uh, we usually play, we have this traditional gig we've been doing at a wonderful theater um, called the Old Town Music Hall. And uh, it was canceled. And so they put on a program where they had the, the people who run it, they play this beautiful, mighty Wurlitzer organ with all the bells and whistles. They broadcast from there, just solo, just the player playing from there. And then they stream me in somehow. And I, 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 I did a little solo set of a few songs and uh, it, was, it, was, it was something, it was nice. Sneak yeah. in something like that. And I've sent out a couple of things for uh, the Charlie Chaplin Festival at the Niles SNA Silent Movie Museum. <laughs> They've been doing programming, and um, I sent some uh, some relevant silent movie era songs for that. And um, started started an online program. That was yes. that's a new thing. I never planned on doing that. <laughs> no. Well, how did the parlor parties come about? <laughs> Well, uh, this was right around my birthday, March 20th. Mm -hmm. um, we suddenly foresaw that all of our gigs on the calendar going forward were just 
closing out, falling apart, shutting down right and left. And so we had shows, we had things we were supposed to do. And um, my husband's working uh, at home and he works for the Hammer Museum in, in uh, Westwood. And they've been having meetings since the very get-go about just carrying on some kind of programming online. Mm. And so they were experimenting with, very, with things like the Zoom. And so I was kind of right there listening to what was going on with, with them and their programming. And, and, uh, and, and some musicians were talking about going live, doing the live streaming thing on Facebook and Instagram. And we did try that. <laughs> I think it was on my birthday. And it was a little embarrassing because we were both staring at the screen and, and typing things in on the computer. I'm going, um, I don't think we're, I didn't see how we get online. <laughs> we were already broadcasting. <laughs> so, so that, well. A lot of people have had that trouble. That's that kind te of messy. Teasing problem. <laughs> <laughs> so uh anyway i mean the thing is that so i'm not able to play with my band but i i love to put on shows and i thought well if we can't do what we we can't do anything with playing and syncing i guess there are a couple of programs but you have to wear headphones and it's you know not that interesting mm -hmm. somehow to me because we don't uh my band janet klein and her parlor boys we don't we don't uh, record that way in separate overdub tracks. Mm. And so it doesn't feel that natural to me to try to do that musically. So I started this little thing that I, we called hit of the week parlor party. And I would just get together with one or two musicians like this. And we record the zoom meeting and we chit chat, we show and tell because everybody in my band is interesting and they collect things. They, they collect vintage art or, or they're artists themselves and they're making things and I'm making things and collect things. So we were just showing and telling and chit-chatting and then we trade off solos. Or I did a, I did a few programs with a, a fellow that I play with up in Northern California, Frederick Hodges, who's a great pianist and wonderful music historian. And he's got a big collection of fun things. And so we tried out... Um, we tried out with our programs where, where I would play maybe the verse and first chorus of a song, and then we would segue and he would sort of take it away on the piano and, and do a nice big time arrangement. And that was, that was fun. Fortunately, it's been really fun to just stretch out and try some new things creatively and stay in touch with everybody and get people to tune in. Mm. And uh, so I did about 20 of these programs, which we, we broadcast on Facebook. And then I've, uh, because they were recorded uh, and my husband edits them. So they're kind of nice and neat. We make little title cards and, and then we put them up on YouTube. And so they live there uh, on my YouTube channel. And, uh, and then after about 20, I, I tried some other things. I did, I did a program with a poetess friend of mine and then I also did a program with uh, a couple that I met who are puppeteers. They're puppete puppeteer artists and creators. And uh, I met them uh, doing a virtual vaudeville program that a gentleman back East put on where he had a whole stable of performers each doing 10 minute segments, sort of like a vaudeville 
routine. And we did three sets each all day long throughout the day. And so I met these puppeteers there from Maryland uh, called Alex and Olmstead. And um, we kind of stayed in touch. And I said, I invited them to, if they wanted to do a little interview thing with me. And they wrote me back. I, I ended up recording a, a song for them. And then they uh, used it as a soundtrack and built a, a puppeteer puppet thing with cutouts and um, mechanical things. And then uh, they merged it with my song uh, all timed and everything. It was just beautiful. Wow. And then, and then, be, then for them, I think that they're used to being live performers also, and so, but they've been recording their their routines and things as they come up with things since since the pandemic. So, um, so that lives on YouTube also now. Right. And uh, let's see. Oh, and then my last one I did was with uh, my friend Jerry Beck, who's an animation historian. And for many years at the Steve Allen Theater in Hollywood, we uh, had a show together where Jerry would open the show showing um, uh, vintage animation and musical film shorts from the 1920s and 1930s. And then we would have a concert after that. And uh, so I really have missed doing those shows for a while. And uh, so we did a little thing, just him and I, and uh, we showed four very, very rare early sound cartoons, early sound synchronized uh, cartoons. And it was just great fun. He has, uh, we both did show and tell with uh, animation related things that we have. And, uh, and I kind of followed up some looky-loo things just to see, uh, just to investigate who did the the sound, the music recordings, the music uh, writing for these early cartoons. And a lot of those people came from vaudeville and were performers themselves on the vaudeville circuit. And, or one of them, Phil Scheib, um, was, uh, was doing the music for D.W. Griffith films. Mm. And so it was just fascinating to just follow, you know, follow the trail. And we've met in the middle and compared notes and um, it was just great fun. Like, um, for instance, uh, Sammy and Herman Timberg are a couple of my favorite people just to, just to look up and glean whatever I can. I found a few recordings, a few film snippets of, uh, of them and their routines. Some of them got uh, recorded. They did some of the music for the Marx Brothers uh, in their early days in theater and in film. And uh, Sammy Timberg ended up writing the theme for the Betty Boop cartoons. Wow. And um, so anyway, so we showed an early Betty Boop that was just great. Um, it was called Betty's Birthday or something like that. And it actually, uh, just by chance, we were showing it and talking about it. And he said, oh, and this year is Betty Boop's 90th birthday. Oh. And uh, so, so that, was, that was very fun to share and um, and in that cartoon, they played a couple of my favorite songs. <laughs> Betty Boop was singing a song called Humming to Myself. And it reminded me that we had actually done a full-blown recording of that song that I had never released. And we did it at the Old Town Music Hall, incorporating the, the Mighty Wurlitzer organ and my band. And I went back and found it. And I put that on the show 
and I was thrilled. I mean, really, there's been some, you know, woo, fun things. You know, <laughs> we had time to go through archives, things that we've stored, and we put out. Um, we've moved all our catalog of recordings to Bandcamp, and have been able to release things digitally that we don't have the money to produce physical merchandise at this point. But we've said, oh wow, we can do this. And um, one of my bandmates passed away in April, Ian Whitcomb. I was going to ask about Ian. I mean, he was such a uh, legend and a fantastic ukulele player. Yes, I mean, really, the he was one of the proponents, the core proponents, when there were, hardly anybody was into the ukulele. Yeah. He was one of those people like George Harrison and our Tiny Tim, one of the few people who loved the ukulele in the 60s, right? And they were influenced by George Formby or Tiny Tim was influenced by all the, the 1920s crooners like Bross Colombo and Bing Crosby and Rudy Valley. And he was just trying, or Nick Lucas, right? Because Tiptoe Through the Tulips was written in 29, I think, and was something originally played by Nick Lucas. Mm on the guitar and also the great feature of Tiptoe Through the Tulips is in the Hollywood Review of 1929. In case no one's seen that, Incredible. there's a double thing. You get you get a performance of, of Tiptoe Through the Tulips by Nick Lucas and you get the most fabulous ukulele extravaganza moment on film with Cliff Edwards, Ukulele Ike with a whole chorus line of girls with ukuleles. And that was like a star moment for Cliff Edwards as a ukulele artist. It makes me want to go and watch it again right now. Me too. <laughs> Maybe I will. <laughs> yeah, right? Oh, and cool. then Ian, you know, we, I really, you know, just because uh, ooh, it's just this cathartic thing. We, I just, I, I found a manuscript that he had lent me of something that he was trying to get published about pop music he and i really uh have found myself looking for some of his recordings and writings and things just to stay close and, and well that. and you did you did put together a compilation that is on Bandcamp in honor of ian which i yes. encourage everyone we, to seek out and we were able to do it quickly because yes. of that venue at Bandcamp because we really it would have taken much longer to try to put together a physical package CD, uh, but we were able to go through all of our archives and find all the compositions that he wrote or ones that he was like the star singing performer on that that um, uh, that we released with um, my band, Janet Klein and her Parlor Boys. And his relationship with my husband, Robert, was, was so special. And I really feel like some of his greatest recordings, he was able to do some really, really great things with my band and with Robert producing. Mm -hmm. He did some of his uncle's compositions and things that really required a lot of production. And, and you know, it, it was really great. I mean, we, I'm very proud of, of those recordings. So we, we did put out something called Ian Whitcomb Remembered. What, what did Ian bring to the band? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Good question. Ian. I mean, Ian was much older than me, but he was such an energy of fireball, of information, of just pure white hot energy and star quality, right? So 
so at any point, if if somebody made a made a request for something, and I didn't know it or didn't want to do it or something, <laughs> here's Ian, and he would just blast if I was tired or anything. I mean, I always could just hand it off to him, and of course, he brought a whole dimension of uh, English music hall, just a wealth of, of history information and hilarious jokes and uh, and wit and wow, it was really great. It was really, it was a really wonderful thing to have Ian Witt come in the band. And I, I didn't even have to ask. <laughs> I mean, it sort of happened a number of times with with my band members, sometimes I'd say it's a little bit like being Dorothy on the yellow brick road. I've met people one at a time. And when when I find another person who their love thing is this music from the 1920s and 30s, and that's just their focus in life. And it's like, oh, I'm a, I'm a member of my tribe. You're in, let's do something. <laughs> how, how did you meet Ian? Well, uh, let's see. I started to play ukulele in about 1994 or five, and I was all by myself. And I was doing poetry recitation. I was writing poetry, and in my mind, I was collecting uh, old music for many years. And in the 90s and backwards in time, there you know there wasn't the internet. So it was really very hard to find 1920s and 30s. Anything pre-big band was very hard to find. And so I just call it like desperate joy, you know, that I would have finding any resource. So there was something called Pearl Records from England and um, Bear Records in Germany, Document Records in Germany. There were a few companies that were putting out these compilations of old recordings uh, you know, gathering together things that were recorded on 78 RPM records. So I'd find some of those. And I also corresponded with people. My dad was an artist and an art teacher. And he had this thing, this little publication, this small magazine, kind of like your magazine. <laughs> and um, it was called The Letter Exchange. And it was based out of San Francisco. And they had a lot of teachers that subscribed to this thing. And it was a little bit like a internet chat room. <laughs> you could propose things that you're interested in, that you're researching and send it to the letter exchange. They would post it like a want ad. <laughs> and then you could uh, start a conversation on some topic like in the a public conversation topic. And then other people could chime in and everybody would send letters to San Francisco to this address. And then they would publish everything in the in the magazine, these little exchanges. Mm. And then they would be this in-between service. So they would exchange addresses for you at a certain point if you felt comfortable. And then you could just carry on your correspondences on your own. I found this in, in my dad's studio, this, this funny publication. And I started to go there and use it to research 1920s music. And I found some interesting people that had a lot of great recordings and we traded cassettes in those days. So I had this collection of the songs that I loved. I was secretly thinking, I wish I, I wish I could sing in front of people. 
but I didn't. And so I started writing poetry that made me feel like a chanteuse, like a, I wrote my own sort of Cole Porter kind of things and in poetry. And, I, and little by little, I started to sneak in playing a song or two on the ukulele or using my triangle my readings <laughs> <laughs> and then at one of the poetry readings i had met i started to meet a couple of um, musicians and i asked them to play some some music in between the readers for his poetry reading and it was really fun yeah, that kind of got me going and uh, anyway so i started to play out with the ukulele a little bit and a lady friend of mine said, oh, you got to meet my boss. He's a nut like you. <laughs> <laughs> and her, she was working at Billboard magazine. And so she invited me to meet her boss. So I brought my ukulele to the offices of Billboard magazine. There's a Wilshire Boulevard or something, a really big, fancy office. And I march upstairs and I get led into this fellow's office and he shut the door. And he got out his ukulele <laughs> uh -huh. and he told me, he said, I'm going to tell you something confidential. I'm quitting my job here at Billboard magazine to devote myself to popularizing the ukulele. And it was Jim Beloff. And so it was right at that time where he was just transitioning into this, this business of the ukulele and and really it was a very small group of people that were that that knew each other or that were playing i i start i met um some people in santa cruz california and i met this fellow peter well peter this fellow and his wife peter and donna thomas who were miniature bookmakers and they tour around in a in an incredible gypsy wagon wow <laughs> I met them at this thing and he was there playing his ukulele and I said, I play too. And um, so we, we became good friends and he started little ukulele clubs up there in Santa Cruz. Mm. He introduced so still going to, strong. Yeah, oh, exponential. Mm. And uh, he introduced me to Tony Graziano, who had been a luthier, who was just starting to make ukuleles. And I met him kind of early on and I, I was enamored with what I saw there in his studio. He had a black lacquer ukulele that he had just made. And that made me crazy. <laughs> oh my <laughs> gosh, that's really beautiful. And I went home and started thinking about it. And I called him up and I said, you know, I was noticing that mandolins often have beautiful inlay on the front, the face of the instrument, but I've never seen a ukulele like that. Is there a reason why? I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> I made a very kind of elaborate little design for my custom ukulele and he made me one. And I'd only been playing for a year mm. and I ended up with this really fancy looking instrument. <laughs> so at first I felt a little sheepish, you know, <laughs> showing up places with this very fancy instrument. I thought, oh my God, people are going to think I... You know, it's like dressing like Elvis Presley and playing very simply. <laughs> but what the heck? So I met Ian Wickham through Jim Beloff, who put together shows uh, in the late 90s. He started something called Uketopia. And I was the only girl. 
Was this so, at McCabe's guitar shop? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I went to a later one where, where Bill Tapir was appeared with Lyle Ritz. Oh but, yes, yeah, those incredible. were really really great, and that was really the was really the start of something. Uh, Jim started to manufacture the flea and the fluke. He made these kind of uh, casual bang around ukuleles that were inexpensive and made out of material that was really sturdy and you could just take it anywhere and feel free <laughs> and it sounded good and plays nicely. Yeah. He put out songbooks. He started that show. And honestly, I think that was a real a turning predecessor point. of the explosion. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Jim Beloff has a lot to do with, you know, how I know you and uh, how I know a lot of people as well. Exactly. And, and just, I, who knows? It was the, it was still early times for the internet. Yeah. So I think we all just started to find each other there also. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, the ukulele kind of exploded at the same time as we could connect that way. And, um, and also just, it's such a, it's such a cut the pretense kind of instrument. Mm. Yeah. And well, besides, I always say, you know, it comes with low expectations. Which is handy sometimes. You can't wait to with ukulele. People are not thinking you're going to be Andre Segovia on the guitar. <laughs> and so that frees you up to, it's just pure expression. And yeah. it, it, it's cozy. It's not pretentious. And whoever you are and whatever you want to share with some somebody, there it is. Exactly. <laughs> uh, speaking of the the magic fluke instruments like the flea and the fluke you also created your own banjo ukulele called the Kleinet firefly uh which is a fantastic instrument i have one myself uh, are they still available there are there's probably still about 20 wow go go and buy them uh they're really cute they are they also have, have a graphic drawing a uh, cute drawing on the front. Yeah. And I rigged up mine to glow in the dark. That's it. I, I want to get my brother to do the same for me. I, I did propose it because here's the thing. Um, as soon as uh, Jim and his family started to manufacture those, the flea and the fluke and all of that, I remember saying, Jim, don't you think that the world needs a flapper fluke? And... He didn't really get excited about that, <laughs> but I thought one of these days I'm going to, I'm going to try to come up with a design and see if I can get him to do that. And I, and I just, I couldn't, the shape of the fluke is, I don't know. I just couldn't figure out how to come up with something for that. Mm. I did. I did I come across recently some paintings I did. I was trying to come up with a design. And then a few years later, they came up with their own Firefly Banjolele. And that, I said, that's it. I'm going to, I'm really going to do it this time. And um, so I proposed it and um, we manufactured, uh, we did it. We manufactured uh, some of them. And, um, and I was here practicing with my band and just happened to hold it up to the, to the lamp. And the way that it caught the light through the head, and I've got this, this little firefly flapper character on there and an, and an owl. And uh, I saw that one. Oh my gosh, the firefly flap 
flapper angelaly i gotta light this thing up and i proposed it but they didn't go for it so so far there are two in existence that are rigged with a switch in the back and yeah. they light glow in the dark it's it's great. <laughs> well, soon to be three when I get mine going. <laughs> and well, next time, next time when we're able to travel and I come to LA, I'll bring it with me. We'll, we'll, okay. Or we could do a Zoom thing. Who knows? You know. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I at first I just tried to put some lights, LED lights inside, and so it wasn't it wasn't an even glow. Yeah, and I took the I took my sort of rig, I rigged up, glow in the dark, uh, Banjulele to a show at the at Brookledge, where there were all these magicians. Yeah, and there was a gentleman there who said, you know, I help magicians do things with light, <laughs> and so I just handed it to him. I said, so yes. that. <laughs> <laughs> so he rigged me up. <laughs> um you've got a oh. a new album out as well on Bandcamp called Yiddish Follies which is uh well you tell them about it. <laughs> well, it's fantastic. Yes. I know that much. Thank you. <laughs> well, uh we uh we'd been over the years peppering our sets with here and there Hebrew vaudeville numbers, mm. Yiddish dialect humor numbers and um which the, those those uh those were popular it seems in the 1910s uh when still the yiddish theater was around and it's a it's a it's an interesting subject it's also a time when there was a lot of ethnic specialty humor and not to mention minstrelsy and so when you go back towards the turn of the century and into the 19th century, music-wise, to do research, you will find it is a minefield of political correct damage <laughs> material <laughs> because it was just part of the, the, it was part of the society back then, at least in America. I don't know mm -hmm. what's going on in other parts of the world, but partly there, America was this crazy melting pot of immigrant mm. groups and American music was affected by black, black artists, African-American people creating ragtime and early jazz. Mm. And so it is a wild melting pot treasure trove. If you dare, <laughs> <laughs> if you dare Jump. go there. And, um, and so really there's, you know, I, I'm, I'm Jewish. I believe that the, the Hebrew vaudeville material was it. There was like Edison records uh, put out early records of performers doing Hebrew vaudeville. And some of them I imagine were probably not Jewish performers. <laughs> and so there was maybe an aspect of, eh, you know, maybe not the best taste and sort of stereotype imagery and things. Okay. Right. Um, so similarly, like Hawaiian music had its stereotypes, so did the Yiddish genre. Sure. I mean, it was sort of a thing then. It was, it's just a specialty music. Now, what happened was that um, the Jewish artists took it up themselves. And so, for instance, Irving Berlin 
wrote a composition called Cohen Owes Me $97. with the Bell Baker, I think. And, Probably my uh, favorite song on the album. <laughs> oh, goody. <laughs> so um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a character song. And uh, in the wrong hands, it could, it could be, you know, not good taste because, you know, you, but it's, but they're all based on, <laughs> they're just fun character songs. And I'm Jewish. A lot of my, my family members spoke Yiddish. I was around it. I've got all, I know the sound of Yiddish. I, I know a smattering of, of, uh, of Yiddish. So from my family, so I come by it honestly and I enjoy it. And mind you, um, Groucho Marx loved this song of Irving Berlin's. Right. And of course, Irving Berlin himself went on to write Easter Parade and White Christmas and wanted to forget all about this song. And Groucho, there's, there's some well-known correspondence of Groucho asking for the, the original music that he wanted to perform it. And Irving proposed he would want to pay Groucho not to do it. <laughs> Could pay him $97. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, and his concern was, you know, at the time there was this craze of these ethnic specialty things, and then it got more dangerous to do them at different times, where it's in the wrong hands, or it's just, it, it could be misconstrued in weird ways. And, but it's really, a, but it's a hysterical song. <laughs> it's, the humor holds up. It's just terrific. And, um, and a lot of the, this Hebrew vaudeville, specialty music was taken over by Jewish composers and performers and they loaded up these songs with inside jokes mm. that that other people wouldn't even get you know and so it, they took it over for yeah. themselves and wrote a lot of good uh, uh, wonderful character songs and wildly entertaining material mm. and the whole genre of self-deprecating Jewish humor probably came from that mm. Mm. Uh, which lives on. Absolutely. <laughs> well, what's your? Do you have a favorite Yiddish word? Oh, there are so many good ones. Yiddish. Oh, there's a zillion good things. Schmecky. I always say. Uh, I I always say about myself is that I realized over time that I had a high tolerance for Michigas. Michigas. Do you know what that means? Not really. <laughs> Well, there's a good word, Michigana, which just means you're crazy. Right. Michigas is just craziness. Right. Crazy chaos. Okay. And, oh. I love it. And um, so that's how I had a band. <laughs> <laughs> I could handle a lot of craziness. A lot of things going on. And I enjoyed it. But then over time, I got tired. <laughs> <laughs> I had to back off. Yeah on the amount of Michigas in my world. Well, you've got enforced, enforced holiday from Michigas at the moment. <laughs> I have to ration myself because it, it can be tiring. So, oh, there's so many. Oh, my God. It's, it's the perfect, like they say, that uh, word automatopoeia. Yep. These words that sound like what they are. Yeah. Yiddish, Yiddish, all of Yiddish sounds like that, doesn't it? You already like know it. it. Yeah. Somehow, if you somebody says, "Oh, you're a schmendrick," you know, kind of, you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever speak Yiddish anymore? Well, just I just pepper my just speech. Actually, I find myself 
quite often peppering my my speech and texts and emails and it it just won't let me it spell checks me <laughs> i can't even say oy vey with that it's spell checking me into something else yeah i'm constantly frustrated by <laughs> by that they need a they need a yiddish correction thing what do you miss most about performing live <sighs> oh i have to say that just before the shutdown, I had a couple of live gigs that were all time wonderful, really special things. I was invited to play with my band at a place in Death Valley called the Amargosa Opera House. And I knew about it. Uh, we had been out to Death Valley um, to play for a party for the Death Valley Conservancy. Uh, they were having an exchange with the Borax Company, who still, who still owned some of the property there right. out, in, out in the desert. But it was an old mining camp for Borax. And they handed over the, the old mining camp. The remains of the mining camp are still there. And this is something that was functioning up until like 1929-ish. And... There was a little town called Death Valley Junction, or Amargosa, uh, that was a little vital piece at the time the camp was there. They built this hotel in the 20s um, that was probably for the sponsors or the people in charge of the, of the camp or the operations there. They made an opera house so that the miners who were living there at the camp could get a little culture mm. and there wasn't much else there but I guess a little bit after the crash the company just shut down their operations there at the mine and so Amargosa became a ghost town pretty quickly and this ballerina discovered the property somewhere in the 60s I think and she was an unusual iconoclastic person and she figured out how to buy it. And she just bought the little town with the hotel and the wow. opera house and brought it back to life and put on shows there until she passed away. Mm. And she lived a long life there. And so I just missed meeting her when we went to do the party at the mining camp. Um, but I went to go meet her and she wasn't feeling well. So I didn't get in and I left some CDs. And so a couple years later, uh, I was contacted by the people that are carrying on her legacy there. And they said she really li liked your music and she loved vaudeville. And that was her whole thing was, you know, trying to keep vaudeville and dance going out there in the desert. Wow. And, um, and so it was the 52nd anniversary of her opening the theater. And so people came from all over. We had a full house and I knew it was going to be special because she had painted these murals all over and it was her venue for herself. Mm. And so we got in there and it was a small scale theater. And so you hardly needed amplification. You feel very up close to everybody. And so I realized I even went off mic and kind of positioned myself on this little balcony and did some things there. Oh, it was really something to be on her stage. And because she was just a person who followed her dream. This was her dream 
manifestation, this, this opera house. And, and so it just gives me goosebumps just to think about it. So to be there with a full house and all these people that knew her and adored what she was doing, it was, it was just, wow, magical. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we did that. It was right at the end of February. It was on the 28th of the month. And um, then uh, I did a last show with uh, my pianist friend, Frederick Hodges, uh, at the Old Town Music Hall in El Segundo. And it was the first show for us, uh, just the two of us. And that came from, uh, Frederick came with me on tour to Asia a couple of years before in 2018. And we had a lot of time to chit chat and he's such a great music historian that uh, I hit him up with every obscure thing that I, I could think of, <laughs> like little <laughs> places in film where music was unidentified or there's some cabaret singer who you don't know who this is singing a snippet of a song. <laughs> and I, every single thing I asked him about, he knew everything and he had the music and he, he knew the credits for everything. And, and so I said, oh God, we just have to, okay, I have to learn all that music because I've been pining over this music <laughs> for years. I, everything that I kind of was dying of curiosity about and he had all the answers. I said, okay, I'm just going to learn it all. <laughs> <laughs> and so we did that show together, all this new material that I have not recorded yet either, yeah. but wow, just like everything I ever dreamed of. You know? <laughs> I love obscure things i can't help myself i have a guy here counter towards so like what is that (laughs) (laughs) where did your obsession with with collecting old vintage things come from i'm wired yeah (laughs) i'm wired for it i don't know i think you know just growing up in san bernardino california where you know everybody else was interested in I don't know, the Beach Boys or rock and roll music or everything that I didn't, and I didn't, I didn't get it. Mm. And so it took me a long time to figure out what made my head sparkle. Mm. <laughs> what had, and, uh, and so little by little, I found these bits of things that just <gasps> made me so happy and uh, had meaning for me and had a connection to the past. And I was always trying to connect to the past through my family members and grill them about their lives and what they did and all the remnants and evidence that they had of their lives going back to the old country or to New York City in the 30s. I just wanted to know. And so I'm still picking up pieces and following clues. And it always pays off in happiness for me <laughs> well and, 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 and in happiness for us because we get to see you doing it and <laughs> i think you've taught me a lot you know about the, the history of la and the history of america in a lot of ways and uh, so you're doing so well thank you for doing that as well oh. it's an important job you're a you're a curator oh boy <laughs> not, well i feel like i'm having too much fun to feel like a, <laughs> a oh, an no, academic about it just keep going that's all we're saying. But I'm so happy to share it. And, um, you know, for a long time, I was just all by myself collecting those things corresponding to people. And I didn't know anyone that I could sit down and listen to a record with. 
78 record. And eventually I did finally meet 78 RPM record collectors who were so knowledgeable. And that's, you know, one of my favorite things ever to do is sit with a person who has a collection of wonderful things and we can just geek out. And mm. <laughs> so it's, uh, it, it, it works for me. And for instance, uh, when I started to have a band and to tour, for instance, when I got invited to the Adelaide Cabaret Festival in mm. Australia, every time I do get a chance to travel anywhere, I mean, even at, into a town a few miles down the road, I always want to know what was there a hundred years ago? What was going on there in the, mm. in the 1910s and 20s? I want to know. Mm. And so when I got invited to go to Australia, I sort of did a little crash course on trying to dig up what what was Australian vaudeville like? Did they have it? And I did find some things that <laughs> I learned. I learned a tune called Izzy and Ozzy, Izzy Lizzy. Do you yeah, know that one? <laughs> I do. Through you. Only through you, though. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was originally a, a duo that traveled around. They, called, they were called Flotsam and Jetsam. It's a great name. And they were humorists and and they they did some musical ditties sort of like van and skank there was there were these vaudeville type uh, duos in those days and i also found drover music a lot of whistling mm. whistling cowboy kind of music which i i had no idea about but mm. when you dig around in some of your antique shops and little thrift stores and things we found these sort of what we would call cowboy, but I I learned that you call them drover. Drovers, yeah. Drovers. Traveled around the country taking work where they could find it. Yeah, so there were those itinerant musicians that got recorded on those old records too. Yeah. So anyway, so what I, I mean to say is no matter where on earth I scratch up and during that time, I just find treasure. And it's still, we live at a time, I feel very lucky that we live at a time where you can still, I mean, I don't know, right now we can't do anything, but Coming up, I could go to old junk shops and things and find things very inexpensively. There was like pieces of evidence. That's how I got interested in, in collecting old sheet music. Was, you know, you could find find it, these beautiful graphics, you know. And I didn't know anything about most of this stuff, but they were so beautiful and it cost a quarter or something. You take it home and it's like a little time capsule. Mm. Those sheets uh, will tell you the music, it might have come from a show at the time or some review um, at a nightclub. It said featured by a certain performer. Mm. And, and on the back, they would also always feature snippets of other popular tunes that you could fall in love with. Mm. And so one piece of sheet music could lead you a lot of places. And now with the internet, I can type in like the most obscure vaudeville. I mean, uh, like a ragtime era song, like something from 1902 that nobody knows what this is. And I honestly, I can type it on the internet and, and a lot of collectors have put their cylinder recordings and their 78 recordings online. So you can hear the original just like that. Incredible. In that way, it's incredible. And even this, you know, seeing each other and talking to each other. Do, do you think when the virus is finally under control that this digital music revolution will will stay in some form will you do some online concerts and things you think as well i do think that what we're experiencing feels cataclysmic mm. Mm. i think it's it is changing everything 
Yeah. Um, one of the worries is I just don't know when we get through this, some of our favorite venues and theaters, uh, businesses, nightclubs, bars, mm. shops, everything. I don't know what's going to survive this, but we can tell what's going to survive is this new movement to take it online. There's mm. more services, there's more ways to put a show together and um, we're all making do right now. And I think I do in certain ways, there are things you can do. Yeah, but it still venue. can't replace the, the live oh, oh, I know. experience. That's the thing. And, and for me, I love uh, to play in a wonderful historic venue. That's just one of my favorite things. You know, just something that's being cared for yeah. by the proprietors or conservators, these wonderful yeah. vintage theaters. And you visited some of the great ones in Los Angeles while yeah. you were here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's nothing like that. And, and, and of course, we all took it for granted. We thought it, this was lost forever. Life. Yeah. Mm. So it's, it's shocking that we can't get together in a mm. theater situation and visit in the lobby and hang out afterwards and all the things we, we love to do. Yeah. So, uh, but it is really, uh, it's really endearing that just that we can stay in touch with everybody you know the best we can yeah. and and the people are checking in and saying how much they miss us and and enjoying whatever kind of shows or performing we can do mm. um online these days and um people are supporting a lot of the musicians or just kind of doing busking online and and like you know my shows that i you know it's it's serious here <laughs> so i really 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 appreciate any kind of support and just feeling like people are checked in and following what we're up to and not forgetting us. And, no. <laughs> and I am very excited about being able to put out things more easily on Bandcamp, just taking, having the time to, to move everything. We, we knew about that venue and it's a, great we've been putting, it's a great service and we're putting merchandise up. It's very user friendly. And I, and I can, if people come to band, janetkline.bandcamp.com you can follow me and then I can actually write little announcements and emails directly to anybody that follows me there and say, Ooh, look at, we're going to try to do this now. And, um, and we really are taking this time to, to cook up some new things. So the Yiddish Shafalis uh, uh, compilation we were able to put out, we had been working on it little in bits and pieces and we had it almost ready to go, but we just didn't have the budget to produce the physical CDs. And so, woo, we, just put it out digitally. And then I got enough requests from people that I started to make a little homemade burned CD version for some folks. And then we finally got our distributor to check in on it. And I think they'll buy enough of them so that we can go ahead and manufacture pretty soon. So we're actually working on the design and everything. For instance, I'm going to incorporate a drawing that my dad did that was tacked to his bulletin board for for my whole life. <laughs> and it was this little drawing he did of Karl Marx and Groucho Marx. <laughs> wow. And Groucho is holding up, or no, the bird uh, from Groucho Marx's television show. Right. Uh, you Bet Your Life was his show, which was before my time. So this drawing was always a total mysterious thing for me. But it was the bird from that show would always c come down from, you know, 
your camera above, and he would show the magic, the secret word, the secret word of the day. And and so Groucho would have somebody on. The audience would see what the secret word was, and then it would go away. And then Groucho would interview guests, and if they happened to say that secret word, somebody would win a prize. Huh. And um, so my dad did this drawing of Groucho Marx and Karl Marx as his guest. <laughs> and, and the bird had come down and Groucho said, yes, Karl, you've said the sacred word. And the word was capital. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and, and, and then uh, uh, Karl Marx is saying in the little bubble, Oigewald. <laughs> <laughs> So I thought that was that was perfect to use in my in my packaging. So oh, we'll look forward to that. <laughs> all, all right, a final question then. Uh, if the ukulele was a person, how would you describe it? Ooh, curvaceous. <laughs> oh, you know what? If it was a flower, it would be a daisy. You know, just simple, happy, no pretense. No smell. <laughs> no, but, but a person. I'm kind person of like. Life. I'm kind of like a ukulele. I'm very. I just feel I am what I am. <laughs> I'm not cut out to be, you know, a great diva opera singer. That's not going to happen. <laughs> but the ukulele is just right for me. It's just right for. It's like the girl next door. It's the. It's your honey in the canoe. Mm. It's. It's just. Just you and me. I'm gonna share this with you. My favorite thing, mm. and to me, that's that's just that's what I love about the ukulele. It can be it can be just about anything to anybody. It's such a funny little instrument that there's charm no matter what you do to it. And mind you, I think that a lot of other instruments have that thing going too. The accordion, for instance, mm. trombone. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you do, you do something interesting with that trombone. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to listen to that. <laughs> well, thank Anyhow, you so much for chatting to me. Oh, it's been it's been fun. So good. As usual, you got me going. Well, and, uh, you know, as I've been saying to people, we've had like the worst parts of like, we're into the 20s again, right? But we've already had the worst parts with a flu pandemic oh, and an economic crisis. So I'm just hoping that we get the good parts of the 20s coming up. You know, they're still to come. That's what I'm 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 hoping that you know we're we're going to get back yes. to flapper parties and uh, and good times. Yes, and you know, I mean, it is a time where you really do stop and think. For for me, because I steep myself in Depression era music. Um, and I've always wondered to myself, why was it that there was such great music written during this period? And I think because it was necessary to cut the baloney and just talk about what really means something and what, what can make us feel okay in hard times yeah. and um, what doesn't cost money in life mm -hmm. but is worth worthwhile and brings joy that's the real essence of any good music isn't it really right so so maybe you know we'll we'll learn it the hard way here 
Oh well. Look. <laughs> what can we do? What can we do? We can right. we can go on Bandcamp and we can support you and support <laughs> everyone else who's on there and uh, do the best we can. Oh. Well, I'm glad we have these ways of being together in spite of it all. And yeah. And uh, well, I can't wait I'm to see you okay. again in LA oh. as soon as possible. <laughs> yes. Come when we can all brave travel again. That's it. It'll happen. It'll happen. <laughs> oh, I'll see you well, soon. In the meantime, please stay well. You too. And, uh, I'm so happy you're out there doing what you do, thank making you. it a small world. Try yeah. my best. All right. All well, right. thank you, well, Janet. Keep me on your list so I can hear your podcast. All right. Bye. Bye. Isn't she amazing? So passionate and so knowledgeable. We could have talked for hours. Please subscribe to Ukulele Stories on your preferred platform so you never miss an episode, and give us a rating if you're enjoying the podcast. Now, to end the show, here's Janet with Ain't We Got Fun. The tune was written in 1920, but sadly the lyrics are still relevant in 2020. Until next time, stay safe, keep on smiling, and keep on strumming. Children in the meantime, in between time.